Is this good? It's on. <clears throat> Please follow along as I read from God's Word in Matthew chapter 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After greeting, agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Church, before I begin this uh, sermon, I do want to recommend one book to you in light of the fact that we are nearing the end of this series. If you've been hearing these messages and thinking, as I've quoted from different folks who've gone before us, I know nothing about this reformation of which the preacher man speaks. Well, you are in luck because there is an excellent book written by Michael Reeves called The Unquenchable Flame. You can check this out in our bookshop this morning. And to be quite honest, this is probably the best short, engaging, keyword, engaging, readable introduction to the Protestant Reformation that I've ever read. It uh, came out in the last few years, and it was really helpful for me in kind of getting my arms around some of the content I think God wanted us to cover in this series. So if you don't know much about the Reformation and would like to read a short book that is very well written, he's not only a knowledgeable historian, he's a good storyteller, Michael Reeves. I checked this out in the bookshop, okay? And here's what I actually want to do. I want to give this copy away to someone who promises they will read it. If you will read this book, raise your hand. Karin Kruger, first up. It's all that. Uh, let's see. Come get it, friend. That's for you. Enjoy. And there will be accountability. <laughs> I know where you live. Oh, Lord, would you bless this preaching of your word. Well, it has been nearly, surprise, surprise, Chris mentioned my birthday last Sunday, uh, now that I'm 34, it's been nearly 16 years since I graduated from high school. It's a long time. It's been 12 years uh, since I finished college, uh, though I've been in school uh, for most of my life. <laughs> and um, we'll see if I'm done. But many of my experiences during those years, um, high school and college in particular, because it was so long ago, have already receded from my memory and I've been told by friends of mine who are significantly older than me that that process of receding memory will only continue. I have yet to see if that is the case, but so I am told. But there's one experience, one strong emotion that I do distinctly recall from both high school and college that I don't think I will ever forget. And that's this. My lifelong disdain of group projects. I really 
didn't like group projects. And part of it, this is the only noble part really, was the inconvenience of coordinating so many people's schedules. But if I'm honest, which I must be standing in front of all of you, part of it, a big part of it, was the fact that in my mind, group project meant equal rewards for unequal work. What do I mean by that? Well, some of you know what I mean by that. If you come into the class determined to get an A, you are motivated to do the very best work possible. But if you come into the class and all you want to do is just pass the class because your advisor, who you now hope you ever see again, said you have to take this class, then you're just going to do whatever least amount of work is necessary to pass. I will let you decide which of those students I tended to be. But suffice it to say, I often felt like I did significantly more work than some of my classmates. And yet when the time came for the teacher to reward us appropriately, and I received the grade I knew I had earned, I resented the fact that the slackers, or excuse me, other students, uh, in my group <laughs> received the exact same grade. Group projects violated my sense of fairness. Anybody want to humble themselves and agree with me? <laughs> I got an amen. I hope I get more amens than just that. Oh, my. And my wife has informed me that on multiple occasions, I have managed to pass on that sense of fairness to my children. I'm not proud of that, but it's the truth. It's sad, but it's not a, a surprise, church. There is something deep within my heart that loves meritocracy. I want to prove my worth. I want to earn my way. I want to show the world that if there's something that can be earned, I can do it. And that craving, that pride... Friends, it won't just cause you to disdain group projects. Unaddressed, it will lead you to despise the grace of God. You might, you might think it's strange that I've chosen to preach a sermon entitled Grace Alone from a passage in which the word grace never appears. That's true, you won't find the word grace in Matthew 20, but it is, as a concept, the focal point of this entire parable. And if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying, what he's teaching us here, we need to back up a bit and understand and recognize, why did he actually tell the story in the first place? Jesus' parables never arise out of a vacuum. He's always doing something. He's communicating something. He's responding to something. And so here's the background in Matthew chapter 19. This parable begins the beginning of chapter 20, but the background in chapter 19 is critical. So in Matthew 19, you've got a rich young ruler. He approaches Jesus and asks, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus reminds him, there is only one who is good, and it is not you, rich young ruler. It is God. And he challenges the man to sell his possessions, to give to the poor, and, and to follow him. Jesus knew that, that money, possessions, stuff, was an idol in the man's heart, a false god. He loved his stuff more than he loved God. And so he refused Jesus' offer, and he walked away. And the contrast between what that young man refused to do, 
refused to give up, and what the 12 apostles, including Peter, chose to do and chose to give up to follow Jesus, well, that distinction, that difference, that doesn't escape good old Peter. And Peter, who always thinks what everyone else is thinking, but always says what no no one else will actually say, but they were doubtless wondering, says this in verse 28 of Matthew 19. Look there, church. Hey, Jesus, see? We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Well, Jesus' response to Peter is is remarkable. He, He assures Peter that all who choose to follow him will receive a rich reward. A rich reward. But then he takes the opportunity to gently correct Peter. He gently corrects his underlying assumption. And in so doing, church, he gently corrects us. He tells a parable designed to teach Peter, designed to teach us, that every good thing we receive from the hand of God is a gift of grace. That's his goal. Now, if you've been in church for some time, you've probably heard that word grace. We sang about it this morning in different ways. Many, many times. Like many other words you can hear in church, you can use it, you can speak it, you can hear it, you can sing it and have not a clue what it means. (laughs) So what, what is grace? Well, grace, defined in the Bible, is God's unmerited favor. That's what grace is, God's unmerited favor. It means that God never blesses us because we deserve it. He blesses us because he's gracious. He doesn't give the way the world gives. We say that if you place first in the race of achievement, that you should get the first and the best reward. But the kingdom of God operates according to the opposite principle. So look at Matthew 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. If if you've been reading the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, this isn't new information. What has Jesus said? It's the poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. It's those who, who know they have nothing by which they can commend themselves to God. Those who know that they don't ever deserve God's blessing, who actually end up receiving God's blessing. Now, because it's a parable, let me add this. We need to interpret it as a parable, okay? Jesus isn't saying that everything the master of the house does, God does. Or everything that the master of the house says, God says. It's an illustration, okay? It teaches us by way of analogy. And Jesus uses this master of the house at the beginning of verse 20 to help us understand something about the grace of God. That's his goal in bringing this word to your heart this morning, friend. He wants the grace of God to go from a nebulous idea, a church word, to something that is intensely precious to your heart. And by the way, quite humbling in the process. So what does grace mean? I think there are at least three answers to that question in this parable. Grace means, first, that God gives according to what we need, not what we deserve. What does grace mean? It means something, friend. The first thing it means, the first thing this parable teaches us that it means is that God gives according to what we need, not what we deserve. So a little background. If you were a day laborer in the first century and you didn't work, you didn't eat. That's what life was like. There there was no social security, no safety net. You couldn't file for unemployment or draw down your retirement account. Okay, What you earned that day was all you had. And, And in that kind of arrangement, imagine what it would have felt like. Just imagine this, to stand in the marketplace before dawn, wondering, waiting, hoping, 
that somebody would see you and hire you every day. Why? Because if you don't get hired that day, you can't feed your kids that night. Now, a wise master of the house, to shift from the laborer to the master, he knew exactly how many of those laborers he needed to accomplish the work that was necessary. If he was wise, if he was a savvy businessman, he would hire exactly that many for an entire day of work. No no less and no more. And that background, that experience, all all that we see in verses 1 and 2, that was very familiar to Jesus' hearers. They had seen this go down thousands of times, and they knew that a denarius was the customary wage for working a 12-hour day. So up through verse 2, nobody's surprised. It's like, okay, Jesus, we get this. We've seen this before. But in verse 3, friends, verse 3, things take an unexpected turn. (laughs) What happens in verse 3? Well, the master of the house at the third hour, which is roughly 9 a.m., he goes back to the marketplace. That's a little strange. Jesus doesn't say that he needed more workers. He simply says that he saw others standing and doing nothing in the marketplace. So what's he do? Well, he invites them to work in his vineyard and he promises to pay them whatever is right. He does the same thing, surprise, surprise, at the the sixth hour around 12 p.m. and the ninth hour around 3 p.m. And at this point, Jesus here has to be thinking Either this master of the house has no idea how to run a business or something else is going on here. Something else is driving this man. And by the end of verse 5, I think Jesus' hearers would have had no doubt that this is really, really strange. They haven't seen something like this before. And verse 6 presses the issue even further. Look there. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. To which the master of the house replies, will you go into the vineyard too? There's one hour of daylight left. They're not going to get much done. Arguably, everybody else he's already hired could just double down at the end and take care of it. So, so, so by the fifth round of hiring, and that with only an hour left, the master's motivation in hiring is very clear. But it's uncomfortable. He's hiring on the basis of what his laborers need not on the basis of what he needs. The motivation for inviting the workers into the vineyard is simple. He saw them standing idle. They desperately needed a job. And even when the last group had no doubt given up all hope of ever being hired and ever having anything to eat that day, he hired them Two, he recognized their need and he hired them accordingly. Now, at this point, Jesus here must have thought this master of the house is a really nice guy. He's a really nice guy. He's, he's giving all these guys a job with seeming little interest in what he personally receives. We've never seen a master like this. What a nice Guy, that's amazing. You you find one of these guys, let me know. But then what happens in verse 8, the next development would have floored them. When evening arrives, the master tells his foreman to pay the laborers their wages, and he specifically instructs him to pay the last group First, and to their shock, the laborers who worked merely one hour get what? Twelve times what they deserved. Twelve times. 
Imagine, don't, don't be a spectator, put yourself in their shoes. Imagine the surprise. Imagine the, the relief. And, and an hour earlier, you were desperately racking your mind, standing in the marketplace for how you could possibly feed your family that night. And then out of nowhere, you get hired, which means hopefully you'll have at least something to eat that night, even if it isn't much. But, but to receive an entire denarius, an entire day's wage, that, that was unheard of, friends. That, that was provision beyond your wildest imagination. It was exactly what you needed and immeasurably more than all you deserve. Hear that exactly what they needed, and immeasurably more than anything they deserved. You know what that's like? That's exactly what the grace of God is like. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has broken God's law. Every one of us deserves what? To die as a result. Our plight, our problem, barring divine intervention, is infinitely worse than the laborers who were standing idle in the marketplace. Why, why do I say that? Because our biggest problem is not that we need a job or that we need someone to value us or someone to reward us or someone to, to strengthen our self-esteem. Our greatest problem, friends, is that we need to be rescued and delivered from the wrath of God, from the wages of our sin from eternal death. We need someone to do that for us and bring us back into a right relationship with God. That's our problem. We need, we need someone who can take hearts that naturally shake our fist at doing life God's way and give us new hearts and, and make us adopted sons and daughters of the King that genuinely delight and enjoy to please the Lord with our life. That, that, that's our greatest problem. Listen to how Carl Truman puts it. If we're to be brought back into God's favor and enjoy that holy communion with him for which we were originally designed, then God must take the initiative. We do not need spiritual healing, for that would imply that we are merely in need of repair. We need spiritual resurrection. And resurrection is the unilateral act of God, not a cooperative exercise between the living God and the dead. When was the last time you saw a dead person raise themselves? You'll never see that unless you were standing outside the tomb when Jesus rose. Truman goes on to say, that is vital for an accurate understanding of grace. Hear this, church. Grace is not God giving wholesome advice or helping hands. It is God raising someone from the dead. First Christ, and then those who are in Christ. Do you believe that? That's what grace is. And by the way, that means, brothers and sisters, that the last thing you want God to do for you is to give you what you deserve. That's the last thing you want God to do for you. Why? Because, because as sinners, we are entirely dependent on him being gracious to us. We, we have no hope apart from him. There, there's no righteousness or goodness in us by which we can merit or demand or lay claim to the favor of God. You have nothing in you that can do that. And so we praise God for the gift of Christ. Because in sending Jesus to save us, God has given what? He's given us exactly what we need and the exact opposite of what we deserve. So what's grace mean? Well, first, that God gives according to what we Need, not according to what we deserve. It's the first thing grace means. Here's the second. Second thing grace means. Grace means that God gives out of the freedom of his will, never out of obligation. Let's think about this. None of the laborers who worked an hour 
took issue with their wages. Did you notice that? None of them did. They knew the master had been gracious to them. They knew that they had received immeasurably more than they deserved. But the moment those who had worked the whole day stepped forward, they did so with an unstated assumption that surely they would receive more. Why did they do that? It's because they thought they had earned more. It's not a mystery. After all, they did so much for the master. We're not just talking one hour at the end of the day when you can just finish up some paperwork. Okay, we're talking 12 hours of hard physical work in the hot, burning sun. And the master had promised those who did that to pay them all they needed. Note that. A denarius, full day's wage for a full day's work. But surely they would receive more because they did more. Look at verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. And listen to these words. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Friends, God never gives to us because he is obligated by something outside of himself to do so. He is not accountable to your wisdom. He is not accountable to your understanding. He is not accountable to your sense of justice. He is never compelled to do something. He is never forced to do something. God only does what is pleasing to him, and he only does it because it is pleasing to him. So, are the obedient acts of his children, think about it, pleasing to him? Yes. Are the obedient acts of his children pleasing to him? Yes. I'm not setting you up for a a fail, okay? Yes, they are. Does he promise to reward us for doing what is pleasing to him? Yes, yes. But even when he rewards us, he's not giving to us what is by right our own. It's all his. It's all his. He, he created us. He owns us. We're not not born into this life with an independent title to anything. Your, Your life is a gift. Your breath is a gift. We don't own anything. We don't like that, do we? But it's true. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That's more than moderately offensive. (laughs) Especially as an American. But it's biblical, church. What does John 1.16 say? And from what we deserve, we have all received. From what we own, we have all received. From what we lay claim to by our merit, we have all received. No, what does it say? What does it say? And from his fullness, we have all received. Grace upon grace. Any good thing you receive comes only and completely and ultimately from the fullness of God. It doesn't come from you. 
There's not a storehouse in heaven that has your name on it that is entirely yours and you get to decide whatever gets done with that because it's yours. You don't own anything in the universe. You're a creature. God owns everything. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, which means ultimately the blessings that God chooses to both give and withhold are an expression of his sovereign freedom. We can't charge him with injustice. Why not? Because he is the standard of justice. His his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His, His ways are higher than our ways. And listen, what he chooses to do with what is his is contingent on nothing outside of himself. To which I have to confess, that sounds a little scary and a little unpredictable because I'm not in control. And in one sense, friend, if hearing that, you think I'm a little scared of this God. It doesn't feel predictable. really good because it's called the fear of the Lord and it's the beginning of wisdom (laughs) but in another sense the utter freedom and independence of God it is enormously comforting it's enormously comforting Why, why do I say that because it reminds us that God doesn't give to us because of who we are okay he gives to us because of who he is and that's incredibly encouraging and comforting. Why? Because it means, Christian, that every day you wake up, the question before you is not, I wonder if I can do what it takes to make God bless me today. That's foolishness. There hasn't been one created being from the foundation of the world that has ever made God do anything. He's God. We're not. But what does Lamentations 3, 22 say? You can't make God bless you, but what does it say? It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Why can God say that? You ever think about that? He can say that because his steadfast love for you is not regulated by your love for him. That's why you can say that. If, if, you're, if you're in Christ, God's love for you doesn't flow out on your good days and ebb back on your bad days. It never ceases. Why? Because it's his mercies. His mercies never come to an end. Why not? Because they're not your mercies. They're not my mercies. They're his mercies. They're his before he gives them, and they remain his after we receive them. That, that's why they're new every morning. They don't find their source in what we wrest from his hand by virtue of our obedience. They find their source in the gracious character of God himself. Here's the application. Friend, your faithfulness to God is a false refuge. It's a broken cistern. But his faithfulness to you in Jesus is immeasurably great. So what do we say with the prophet in verse 24 of Lamentations 3? The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. In him. God God gives out of the freedom of his will, never out of obligation. And that is the best news you could ever hear because it means that his goodness towards you depends not on who you are, but on who he is. Oh, that as parents, we could love our children like that. Oh, that as spouses, we could love our husband or our wife like that. That that we would not love, that our mercies would not flow because of who they are, but because of who he is. God never gives out of obligation. He gives out of the perfect freedom of his will. That's what grace means. Here's the last thing it means. Point number three. God gives in a way 
listen to this, that exalts his generosity and exposes human pride. And let me say at the outset of this point that this is probably the most difficult point for me to make because this is where I am most convicted. And I had the uncomfortable feeling this entire week while I was preparing this sermon that this sermon was principally designed for one person in this room, and that was me. (laughs) Because this gets under my skin. Why do I say that? Why do I say that God gives in a way that exalts his generosity and exposes human pride? Well, I say that because I think there are some of us in this room, including perhaps the pastor standing before you, that would like to believe that the kingdom of God works something like this. God has been most gracious in bringing us into his kingdom through faith in Christ by by forgiving our sin, making us right with himself. He's given us what we need and the exact opposite of what we deserve. As Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 29, eternal life is an inheritance in Christ. You don't earn an inheritance. You receive it as a gift. But once that happens, yours truly decides that the situation has changed entirely. It's no longer about receiving gifts of grace. It's all about earning eternal rewards. And the more you sacrifice, the more you obey, the more you leave what? Houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for the sake of following Jesus, the more rewards you'll receive. So having begun on the basis of unmerited favor, the grace of God, we now continue on the basis of merited favor or rewards for obedience. Question. Is that true? Think think about it. Well, I would say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we should expect to receive rewards for obeying God. We should. Matthew 6, verse 3. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He's not kidding. He'll reward you. Matthew 10, 42. And whoever gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So yes, in the sense that we should expect to receive rewards for obeying God in this life. But no, in the sense that the ultimate reason we receive God's blessings is never, friend, that we have merited them or earned them. Never. The the ultimate explanation for why we receive God's blessings both the gift of eternal life and rewards for obedience is that God has been gracious to us. I'll say that again. The ultimate explanation for why we receive God's blessings, both the inheritance of eternal life and rewards for obedience, is that God has been gracious to us. So think about it. Those of you who would like to believe otherwise, like me, why are you able, Christian, to ever obey the Lord? Is it not because he puts his spirit in you and gives you a new heart and a new desire to follow in his ways? I mean, after, after years of struggling with the same Sin. You, you can never seem to make progress in that area of your life. Why, why is it that it, you, you perhaps you finally achieve a measure of victory? It's because the power of God has been working in you. It's not because you accomplish something in your own power. I mean, what, what, what does the Apostle Paul say? 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God, I am what I am. 
I need somebody. Oh, Lord, would you do this? I, I need to wake up every morning and that be like the first thing I see. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. My wife knows that's true. And church, I stand before you to declare to you that has always been true. And it will always be true. You, you may have worked harder than anybody else around you for your entire life. And you may be sitting here thinking, that is why I have this and they have that. And I will not deny you that perhaps you have worked harder than anyone. But there is a reason you have been able to do that. And it has everything to do with the grace of God. You can't take any credit for that. And, and to try to carve out even a, a little part of that credit is the height of arrogance. So without denying the reality of rewards... Jesus reminds his disciples that the ultimate explanation for any reward they will ever receive in the kingdom of God is not the merits of man, but the unmerited favor of God. So riches, power, and, and prominence in the kingdom of this world, or even Christian ministry, they don't entitle you to enter or advance in the kingdom of God. His blessings are reserved for those who, like a little child, entrust themselves to the heart of our generous Heavenly Father. D.A. Carson says it this way, God's greatest gifts, simply because they are God's, I love that, are distributed not because they are earned, but because he is gracious. Now, here's where it gets uncomfortable. He lavishes his grace upon us in a way that deliberately and intentionally undermines human pride. Right? Why do I say that? Well, we'll think about that. Why were the laborers hired first so upset? Why were they upset? It wasn't because the master was unfair. It wasn't. Right? He gave them exactly what was promised, which is exactly what was needed. No, they, they were upset because he appeared to be being more generous to other people than he was to them. In other words, they were jealous. They were jealous. They weren't content with what they had. They wanted what their neighbor had. Now, why did they want that? Well, it's because they were proud. I worked more, therefore I deserve more. They, they were, listen, they were comfortable with the presence of grace so long as it was distributed on the basis of merit or the relative worth of their labor. You know what that is? That's not grace. That's meritocracy. So often I think we have the same, we have the exact same attitude. You know, we're, we're all too happy to receive undeserved blessings from God. I mean, we'll stand up at this microphone on Thanksgiving weekend and thank God for undeserved blessings. But the moment he appears to bless someone else in a way he has yet to bless us, well, we switch from humble recipients to angry judges, and we charge God with injustice, especially when we're convinced that that person he's blessing is less deserving than I am. But we don't say that because we're in church. We're happy to acknowledge the grace of God. We're even happy to agree that he's been gracious to us. But the indignant jealousy 
that we feel in response to God's generosity toward other people reveals what we really believe. What is it that we really believe deep down? What do we really believe? When, when the band leaves the stage and we're not singing anymore, what do we really believe? Well, deep down, we're convinced that if we have something good, money, possessions, relationships, favor in business, favor in the church, we're convinced that we earned it. Maybe just in part. Because we're happy to send a little credit God's way, But when push comes to shove, we prefer to believe because we're proud that the ultimate reason we have what we have is because we are something that other people are not or we have done something that other people have not. And and there's a reason that conviction is so attractive that we decide it must be true. And it's simple. It's because I don't want God to be glorified. I want to be glorified. And so we tell ourselves that that's true. Friend, if the blessings you receive from God are in any way the result of your merit, and even the slightest bit, then you will get glory for wresting them from God's hand. But if every good gift we receive is a gift of pure grace, if God gives not because of who we are, but because of who he is, then every good thing we receive will ultimately serve to magnify his glory, not our glory. And by the way, if that's a new thought for you, you just heard the entire goal of the created universe. (laughs) To glorify God. So, So allow 1 Corinthians 4, 7 to humble you. Allow these words to humble you, friend. What did you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why, why, why do you boast as if you did not receive it, as if you earned it? Grace means God gives in a way that exalts his generosity and exposes human pride. That's what it means. I'll conclude with this. The grace of God towards us is never cheap. It's never cheap, nor is it an expression of mere sentiment. It is the most costly gift that God could give you because he purchased grace for you at the cost of his own life. As a sinner, you deserve nothing but death. That's what we deserve. As the perfect son of God, Jesus merited nothing but life. That's what he deserves. So what is the glory of the gospel? That Christ receives what we deserve so that we could receive what Christ deserves. Unless that transaction takes place, there is no grace for sinners like us. So if you want to experience God's grace, friend, don't listen to this sermon and think, gee whiz, thanks, Pastor, for reminding me what I thought of all along. God's a loving grandfather and is gracious. It's not what I said. The only reason God can be gracious to you and me as sinners is because he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, that that transaction could take place, and it's only in Christ that we know the grace of God. Don't leave here presuming on the grace of God. Thank God for the grace of God and cling to Christ for it is in Christ and Christ alone that you will find it. There's no saving grace to be found because God is generically gracious. There is no such thing as generic grace in God. There is only Christ-centered and Christ-dwelling and Christ-found grace in God. And if you've done that, if you've cast your life, the weight of your life, not on the strength of your merits, but on the grace of God in Christ, then remember this, friend. Remember this. To take God's grace for granted. To spend your days thinking, of course God is gracious. Please tell me something new, Pastor. Is to deny the worth of his sacrifice and to undermine the weight of his glory. Don't do that. Don't do that. And to whatever degree you're hearing me today and you're thinking, Matthew, if I'm honest, I'm no longer amazed by grace. We know what you can safely assume. 
you can safely assume you're no longer amazed by grace because you've lost sight of your need for grace. If it's not amazing to you, it's not that God forgot to launch the fireworks at the end of the show. <laughs> Could you amaze me more, God? Or else I'm going to flip to a different channel. No, no, no. If the grace of God is not amazing to you, there's one reason that's the case, and it's because in your pride and in my arrogance, we have lost sight of our need for grace because we think we don't really need all of it to come from him. And to the degree that's in our hearts, church, we simply need to repent, to ask for God's forgiveness, and to fix our eyes on Jesus because it is in seeing Jesus on the cross that we behold the depth of our need for grace. That's where you go. That's where you fix your eyes. The point of the parable is not that all rewards in the kingdom of God are equal. The point of the parable is that every good thing we ever receive from the hand of God is a gift of grace. So may God make this a church where we sing all our days with our brother John Newton through many dangers, toils, and snares. I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace that will lead me home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that as we now stand to sing of your grace and then partake in the Lord's Supper that confronts our physical senses with your grace, that you would do two things, that you would humble our pride and that you would make us grateful. Lord, there are so many men and women in this room who in the eyes of the world appear very successful. There are other men and women in this room who have concluded that in the eyes of this world, they are a complete and utter failure. And I thank you, God, for how your grace calls both to repent. And ever so persistently, but ever so gently, urges us to agree with what you know is true because you made us. That there's nothing we have that we have not received. And that you don't give to us on the basis of who we are. And therefore what we have or do not have is not ultimately a reflection of who we are. You give to us because of who you are. You're wise. You're sovereign. You're gracious. You're good. When you give and when you take away. And I pray that we would leave this room in light of your grace more humble than we walked in.